Hi, Patreons. Welcome to this bonus episode of the Memento Mori Oracle Podcast, where I, Claire Goodchild, will be talking about the five confirmed victims of London's Jack the Ripper. Known as the Canonical Five in most accounts, these women and their stories have been overshadowed by the infamy of their killer. I hope that this series gives you some insight into the lives of the most famous murder victims of the Victorian era and helps to restore some of the truth and dignity that the media has taken away from them. Now, this isn't going to be your typical bonus episode. It will actually contain two, possibly three parts, beginning with this one, the intro, where we will discuss some very, very basic information about Jack and set the scene of the city at this time. Before I begin, I wanted to mention a lot of the personal information about the victims coming up in part two is thanks to a book called The Five by Hallie Rubenhold. It is definitely worth grabbing a copy of if you want a more in-depth look into these stories. I also just want to clarify that I may use the terms prostitution and prostitute in this series instead of the terms sex work and sex worker, though this will likely be only when I'm quoting a news article. In actuality, there was not much evidence that the victims engaged in sex work. One or two may have, but the issue is that this was a salacious description that sold newspapers in a time when a narrow idea of morality was all a woman had. The idea that a woman living in Whitechapel was automatically a sex worker is like assuming all the men of the area only had one profession as well, like mining. Supply and demand doesn't seem to work out. The point of this series isn't to debate the merits of sex work or whether we agree with it or not, but it is a factor in that the women's cases were not looked at properly because of this assumption. Addiction and socioeconomic hardship was a factor for these women, however, and to understand why, we need to look at the streets of London. The 1880s were an extremely tough time for the working class in Britain, but by all appearances, it should have been a prosperous time. Industry was booming. Mass production as we think of it now was just about 25 years away. Machines were commonplace, as were overcrowded sweatshops. And while incomes were growing for factory owners, poverty was a looming threat for the employees, especially for the women working in East London factories. Women were the backbone of the Industrial Revolution, though frequently overlooked and disregarded in the census that was performed every decade. Conditions of these workplaces were abysmal. Many women were subjected to 14-hour days, but only earned five shillings per week, which would be the equivalent to about four to five pounds today. To make matters worse, women were routinely fined and docked pay at their jobs for tiny indiscretions like talking or not working fast enough. You can only imagine what a bad week could do to a woman's living situation, especially if she was a widow and the only income earner which was a very common situation due to illness. You see, typhoid was rampant during this time, and the first vaccine for this devastating illness wouldn't be invented until 1896, and it actually wouldn't be used on the working class until much later. Living in unsanitary and overcrowded boarding houses, 
allowed disease to spread like wildfire. If you didn't get typhoid, it was likely you would contract another Dickinsonian disease like scarlet fever, tuberculosis, or cholera. While they didn't always kill you, they did lead to long-term health effects, poverty, and homelessness. Living in Victorian London was like living in 2020, but over and over and over. When I wrote that line, uh, it was before the new year, so basically we are living 2020 over and over again. <laughs> But I digress. A popular book called How to Live Well on Five a Week, published in 1910, provided tips and tricks to help women stretch their money and was a staple for housewives. But a lot of the food storage and products recommended weren't available 30 years earlier for these Victorian women. I am sure an 1880s equivalent of the book existed but spending the bit of money you made on one wouldn't seem economical to these women. These books and pamphlets put the blame of poverty on the women themselves rather than rightfully on the low wages and living conditions. Again, it was a hop, skip, and a jump to living a transient life of begging, odd jobs, and the workhouse. Workhouses were institutions that were designed to provide shelter, food, and work for people who were unable to support themselves. Unfortunately, this system was abused by those in charge and became staples of abuse, beatings, child labor, and malnourishment. If you were lucky enough to have an odd job, like selling matches or scraps of cloth, you may earn enough in a day to rent a furnished room in one of the lodging houses, but that was always a gamble. It is no surprise that all five of these women found themselves choosing the streets of Whitechapel in London's East End as their home on a regular basis. Unfortunately, this left them vulnerable to Jack the Ripper. The author I mentioned at the beginning of this episode has brought forth what I think is the most sound and credible theory about why each woman was targeted. Jack didn't pick them up as prostitutes, Though, he may have assumed they were, like everyone else. No, her theory states that he caught them asleep on the unlit streets of Whitechapel. Before they were able to cry out or be heard or fight back, it was too late. Only Mary Jane Kelly was killed indoors, and it is likely she was also the only regular sex worker in the group. So, who is the infamous Jack? I don't want to spend too much time on him, but I will give you a rundown of who I think are the most popular suspects. That doesn't mean I think they were guilty myself, just that they were popular choices. The first is Montague John Druitt. Montague was born August 15, 1857 in Dorset to a well-respected career-focused family. His father, William Druitt, was a medical practitioner and justice of the peace and pushed young Montague into academics where he shone brightly, specifically in the realm of politics and debate. Over the years, the aspiring solicitor was employed in various places, most notably as an assistant schoolmaster of a boarding school where he worked during the murders. He also helped coach cricket there, which he himself was naturally gifted at playing. On November 30th, 1888, Montague was dismissed from his position at the school. Rumors circled that it was due to homosexual tendencies which got him labeled as sexually deviant 
and therefore a danger to the boys at school. This, of course, is likely because of homophobia and not because he was inappropriate with anyone. Whatever really happened, it was an especially hard time for the young man, as his father had recently passed and his mother committed to an insane asylum. Montague went missing early December 1888, and his body was pulled from the River Thames on December 31, 1888. In his pocket were stones, presumably used to help weigh himself down, and a large sum of money which isn't accounted for, but it was likely his severance from the school. Due to the timing of his suicide being right after the death of Mary Jane Kelly, Montague quickly became a suspect in the Ripper murders. Many notable figures accused him, directly and indirectly, despite evidence being circumstantial, and this was likely to put the public's mind at ease. The second of the top suspects in the Jack the Ripper case is Aaron Kosminski. Aaron Kosminski was born on September 11, 1865 in Poland and immigrated to London in the 1880s and settled in the Whitechapel district where he worked as a barber. Years after the murders, when Aaron was living in an insane asylum, documents surfaced written by the police about a Polish Jewish suspect they called Kosminski. One of the memos stated that this suspect had strong homicidal tendencies and an extreme hatred of women. Though in the defense of Aaron, he was considered to be a model resident at the asylum and didn't show aggression towards other people. Aaron being looked at as a suspect could also be a case of anti-Semitism that was pretty rampant at this time. The final suspect I want to talk about is Karl Fagenbaum. Karl Fagenbaum was born in the 1840s in Germany. Not much is known about his early life, but by the 1880s he was working as a seaman and it was believed he could easily have landed near Whitechapel aboard a German merchant ship in 1888. A former British policeman named Trevor Marriott has dedicated a substantial amount of time linking various murders around Europe and North America that could have been committed by Karl. Of course, this is circumstantial, but he makes a compelling case, to the point where if I had to pick one that I thought was guilty, it would be Carl. On September 1st, 1894, a woman named Juliana Hoffman was murdered by Carl. He was executed on April 27, 1896, at Sing Sing Prison in New York. However, during his time in prison before his execution, Carl confessed to his lawyer that he was, in fact, Jack the Ripper. Regardless of who Jack actually was, we have to remember everything that led to the deaths of these women. Women who had already been broken by the cruel realities of Victorian Britain and left to suffer long before their deaths. Hopefully one day, the identities and stories of these women will be talked about more than the theories about the man who killed them. This has been the Memento Mori Oracle Podcast, part one of two bonus episodes on the Canonical Five. Be sure to come back here for part two on Patreon, which will likely be released in April.